That was awesome. Perhaps it won't be rare that we'll sing in multiple languages in a song here in the, the future. I can only preach in one today, though, unfortunately. Well, I got dad jokes as one language, and then, you know, standard, standard. I know you guys love those dad jokes, but, um, yeah, again, really glad for you guys uh, being here today. Eric, thank you for leading us in that, brother. I mean, I botched the Spanish piece of it, but it all was the same. It's all so beautiful to get to sing that together. So, yep. Mm, I just want to preach all about that right now, but I'm not going to because I got something else to talk about. Um, we all love a good rescue story. Uh, isn't that right? That we love to hear a, of a good rescue story. Um, what makes a good rescue story a good rescue story is, of course, like when the stakes are really high and when the situation is dangerous. Otherwise, it's not really a rescue story, right? Um, I watched the movie on Netflix. Uh, it's a recent one. But uh, do you remember the boys' soccer team that, in Thailand that got stuck in a cave and um, then there was a flood and it collapsed on them and they were stuck in that cave, a uh, flooded cave for like 18 days. They had to um, sedate them and put them underwater for hours to get them out. It's, um, it might make you anxious just hearing about it, but it's a, a great rescue story. Uh, the Chilean workers stuck in the collapsed mine uh, many years ago. Do you remember that? They were stuck down there for like 69 days. Crazy. Um, of course, you know, the best... Uh, rescue story of all time, Armageddon with Bruce Willis. I mean, the absolutely true story of an asteroid coming towards planet Earth. Um, remember the theme song of that one? Some of y'all might have fell in love to that song. I don't want to miss a ginger knows. She's like, that was, uh, yeah, that was your wedding dance song or something like that. But um, I love a good rescue story. You do too. Um, man, it brings tears to our eyes knowing that something was lost and that someone or something did what it took to get them out of there. Um, yeah, the higher the stakes, I think the more interesting the rescue story is, right? So, um, my friends, we're here today to talk about something that is difficult, um, but is an important part of God's rescue story. Uh, Jesus touched on this theme that we'll talk about at, at various points through the book of Matthew as we've been working through that. And we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about it because we were waiting until today, uh, which it feels like the right time to go a little bit more directly into it. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, today we are discussing the subject of hell. No cheers. <laughs> no. Um, oh, thank you very much. Yay. Um, that's what I thought as I prepared for this. It's like, ooh, yeah, I like to talk about hell. Um, but, the, yeah, I mean, obviously, even joking about it's awkward because you're like, does he or doesn't he? I don't know. Um, it's a difficult subject, and I will, will ask for your grace on the front end as I uh, try to take what Jesus is talking about and, and show us what that might mean for us, um, that there would be grace. There will be questions you have that I might have the answer to or I don't, or we'll find out one day. Uh, it just raises many, many questions, and of course, as I've already said ten times, is difficult to discuss. But Jesus talked about it, and so, and, and particularly in the story that we're coming up to right now. So we're going to talk about it. Um, and as you are listening, there's probably two types of listeners here that I think just make sense to me to define <laughs> as I communicate to you. Um, 
there might be the first listener who hears these words that Jesus has to say, and maybe it's, it feels like it's nonsense. Um, maybe it feels like it's, it's equivalent to a Lord of the Rings or something fictional like that. If that's you today, as always um, is true of this community, um, we strive to be a place where you can belong even if you don't believe. Uh, so for sure, if you're in that category, if you're in that camp today, and you're like, I don't know if any of this stuff is real, um, you can totally belong to this community, even if that's where you're at today. I just, I, I like to say that because it's true. Um, and to that person, that you, you probably won't feel that if you're in that headspace today, you may not feel the same tension that, that much of the rest of the room will. So just to acknowledge that, that, that other people in the room might be wrestling uh, very deeply with, with what uh, I'm going to talk about in the idea of hell and I would like to invite um, the first group, though, if anyone's in that headspace, to, to maybe wrestle with a different question that I would love to talk about but can't spend a ton of time uh, unfolding in the talk today. A good, Just the philosophical questions of, of where evil comes from and where it's going. I think that, that maybe would be my invitation, if you're in that place today, to uh, consider the global injustices of the world that we all know about and the cry for God that people have, the cry for healing that people have. Um, I would invite the listener in that first category to just wrestle with that. Where does it come from and where is it going? Um, and, of course, that has lots of other beautiful questions, well, difficult and beautiful questions attached to it. But it is my belief, as you'll hear in this talk, that the mission of the church, certainly, man, is to bring as much heaven to earth and to rid as many of the hells on earth as we can. Because there really is kind of such a thing as hell on earth, man. You start to hear some scenarios of the pain that people experience. And yeah, it might be more than, than what is here on earth, but it's certainly we can see glimpses of what hell uh, is like here. But I don't personally think that I can, um, this is just my philosophy, I guess, that that uh, a talk on hell is probably going to be the game-changing convincer for somebody that doesn't believe in God. It could be, um, but I, I doubt it. <laughs> but if it does, then that's great. Um, God can do anything that he wants. But never, nevertheless, today, um, I do, as a Christian and a pastor, take the words of Jesus more seriously than even my own or anyone else's. So this, this talk will be prim- primarily aimed at people who really want to as we read what Jesus says, understand it well and live into it. Um, again, as I've already spoken, that if you don't find yourself there today, uh, we love you and hopefully there's something else in this talk that will be um, beneficial to you. So um, to that second group of people, though, that you might go, yeah, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. Um, uh, you, you may still end up believing something very differently or wondering about very different questions in this room as it relates to what happens after we die. What kind of realms are there in addition to the one that we exist in physically right now? Uh, but I think the most, uh, most everyone will share the common feelings and a common hope against all things related to hell and the hells. So, uh, that hope has a name, and we will speak about that name later. But let me pray, and then I'll set a bit of a context for um, where we're at right now. Uh, Lord, thank you for again for giving me your son, um, one of your many sons, uh, 
a microphone to talk today about this subject that you know I've been wrestling with you about. Um, and thank you for what you're already teaching me and revealing to me in that wrestling. Um, thank you for loving me through the wrestling. And uh, I pray as I deliver this talk, certainly, man, that you'll, um, I should call God man. It's okay. Um, that you would, uh, you would speak through me in ways that I don't even realize. So it's in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're in a series, kind of a mini series right now called Light at the End of the Tunnel. This is the third of four parts. Um, like I said, we've been traveling through the book of Matthew uh, for a whole year, and we're, we're coming to the finish line here in this final week of Jesus's life. And two weeks ago, you'll remember um, when my good friend, Pastor Lori, was here. She talked about uh, events that Jesus was speaking about from a mountainside, and he's still, he's still teaching from that mountainside in the context of this story today. But he was talking about events that would happen within the, the disciples' lifetime, uh, the destruction of their temple, which was a huge deal. Uh, you can listen to that talk on the podcast if you want. I'm not going to go into a ton of review of that. But last week then, I shared that Jesus did seem to be pointing, even though he was referring to local events, but he, he seems to be pointing to something uh, beyond the destruction of their temple, some some sort of return that Jesus would have, and he warned uh, to not try and predict it, to not try and guess when that's going to happen, or even in many ways what that will look like. Um, I'm just going to keep touching my phone, I believe, right there. Um, but that he was talking about a day in the unnamed future where Jesus would return to culminate God's rescue story. And we, we shared some of those words from Revelation chapter 21 at the end that it will look something like no more pain, no more death, no more tears. That's the type of restoration project, rescue project that God is on with humanity and has been really since the very beginning. So Jesus continues the theme of last things today. So it, the first talk was really, again, about like local events that were going to happen Soon thereafter, Jesus starts to look towards, and then I believe today, uh, he really does talk about events that are in the future, um, maybe even, I mean, even from where we sit today, but certainly we're in the future from where the disciples were. So there's two stories in the text today, and I'm only going to cover one of them uh, at, at length. I'm just going to give you a synopsis of the first one because it is, the themes are very similar and there's a couple lines in there that I would love to unpack with you. But the theme of the first and the second story are very, very similar. So I'm skipping the parable of the, the bags of gold. Um, you can stick the text uh, screen up there. It's, it's going to be in Matthew 25. I'm skipping the section from like verse 14 to 30. It's not because I'm avoiding what's in there. Um, it's because for the sake of time, I think we'll be able to draw the same um, beneficial truths from the second story. But that first one, just to say... Um, is apparently Jesus is summarizing that when it comes to how we use our lives, uh, God, that God has given us, the stakes are high, um, maybe even surprisingly high. So in that story, uh, this master gave three different groups of people different amounts of gold, and then they were uh, um, held accountable, I guess, for how they used that gold. And one of them didn't do anything with it. And from there, that master was very upset that they didn't use what was given to them to grow and do good with it. But I want to spend some time on the second story right now because, like I said, I think we can learn some of the same stuff from there. 
And certainly the hell challenge is present probably even more within this one that we'll take a look at. So um, Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 31, uh, says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and pause for a second. So this is where it makes me think that Jesus is talking about the, the like day of the Lord, the return of Jesus, the second coming. I know it sounds strange saying all that stuff, but I believe that's what's going to happen is that Jesus will return and culminate God's rescue story. So the language he's using here, I think points to that more than the stuff he was pointing to earlier in this teaching. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom of heaven prepared for you since the creation of the world. That feels good so far, right? He says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes to clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison to go visit you? Then the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Pretty fascinating so far. Jesus is simultaneously teaching about this separation thing that's going to happen while advocating for the hearts and the lives of the poor. To the point where you you saw him do it over and over again there, right? Whatever you did to the least of these in your society, you've done to me. We're having a like judgment day conversation and Jesus brings it back to like, hey, how did you treat people who were marginalized? What? What is that doing there? (laughs) Why is that so important to God? Seems like God really cares about the poor, huh? About the broken, the people that get stomped on in this world. Let's keep going, though, uh, because it gets a lot more fun. Verse 41, then he will say to those on the left, so the other group. This is not political left and right, by the way. It's just analogy. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. One one. We need to pause there for a minute. So eternal fire, um, that's oftentimes, I mean, you see this in cartoons, you see it in movies, you see representations of people's imaginations, Dante's Inferno, all sorts of pictures of what people think, uh, and they may be adding a lot <laughs> to what the Bible says, but think uh, that hell or the eternal fire will look like. And so... Um, most often, there's four different words that are translated that uh, kind of aim towards the idea of hell. And I'm just going to spend time talking about one. Um, and that is eternal fire that's most translated into the word hell in the Bible. And that word um, is Gehenna. Say Gehenna. 
That's the word that's most often translated as hell. Um, there's other, other um, words in the Old Testament that uh, refer more to the death that we all know is going to come. So like your physical death. Um, so there's four different words. Sheol is that Old Testament word. Um, but Gehenna, it's interesting, um, is actually Jesus is talking about this thing, but it's also a place. Gehenna is a valley that um, as they were sitting on the um, Mount of Olives, you saw a little picture of that last week. They've been, like I said, sitting on the side of this mountain overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Uh, They can see where this valley was. Uh, I'll show you a a picture of a map here. Um, That it was, see that little yellow piece right there? Uh, If you can imagine kind of here, I can do a shadow. Um, (laughs) Not quite. Uh, Bottom right is kind of where the, the Mount of Olives would be, and then they, they could see where this valley in Gehenna is the, the um, modern version of it, but that, that's what that was. That valley was the Gehenna Valley, the, the Hinnon Valley, um, and it's got a lot of history. Um, so the disciples that Jesus was teaching would have been able to just shift their eyes over to where that valley was um, to catch some of the history that was there. And in the past, the people of God in that valley, uh, near God's city of Jerusalem there, um, were sacrificing their sons and daughters uh, in the fires of a pagan god named Molech. And that practice, that fire would spill into the city of God, which the story of God is supposed to be that God's people and then into this city would bring shalom, it would bring peace to the whole entire world. But these other practices, these other detestable things that were practiced by much of the ancient world made its way even into the circle of the people of God. Old Testament prophet Jeremiah records it this way. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. They have built the high places in Tepheth, in the valley of Ben-Hinnon, so that's Gehenna, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer call it the Topheth or the Ben-Hinnon Valley, but the Slaughter Valley, for they will bury their dead in the Topheth until there is no more room. When the carcasses of the people will become food for the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away, I will bring an end to the sounds of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, for the land will become desolate. This is your first time. Welcome to church. (laughs) It's not always this doom and gloom here, but we want to take an honest look at what Jesus says here. So we read about these fires outside of the city where people sacrificed their children to foreign gods and, and it had gotten into God's city and God's people. And how does God, the good king, feel about this? He says it's so vile, it's so evil. I would never allow anyone to do this. It didn't even come to my mind. And so by the time of Jesus' day, the text I just read you several hundred years before that, by the time of Jesus' day with its ugly history, this valley had become the town dump. 
And every year, actually, during the Passover uh, festival, thousands of lambs in the city of Jerusalem would be slaughtered. And guess where the carcasses would be thrown and the blood would flow? That valley. They'd be thrown into Gehenna. Archaeologists have discovered a large uh, sewage system that we almost got to walk through. That sounds fun. Uh, While I was there, almost got to walk through where they would pour the blood from these sacrifices uh, from Jerusalem, and then it would come down that valley, and it became, like I said, the town dump. It was always on fire. The wild animals that were there to chew on the bones of these sheeps and goats um, would gnash their teeth, fighting for the carcasses in the valley of slaughter. This real physical place seemed a lot like the picture that we might think of when we think of the the spiritual hell, right? I'm not doing what I think you think I'm doing right now, though. I think that Jesus is still talking about some other reality. It's a physical place. It's a place that the disciples would have understood is over there that's associated with these terrible things. And it is helpful to know that Jesus was describing that but he seems to be talking about more because the stakes of his rescue mission appear to be even higher. Verse 41 of our text says this again. Then he says to those on his left, you heard this part already, depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For, he says the same stuff here, I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not close me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison did and not help you? Truly he will reply. He will tell you, whatever you have not done for the least of these, you did not do for me. And then one of the most challenging verses in the Bible. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So to us, it feels like there's a sharp turn at the end. In the story before, a similar thing happens at the end with the parable of the gold bags, and it's like, I thought we were just talking about people's employment and how they use the gold that their master gave them. He's talking about two things there, right? How people treat each other and whatever we do or don't do for other people, God takes that personally. I don't know if that feels real deep to you, but it does to me. Because when, when I think about heaven or hell, I just think about if I'm, I mean, this is not how I believe anymore, but if I was good enough to be in heaven or bad enough to go to hell. But Jesus smushes this, like, love your enemy, love your neighbor into loving God too. And that's crazy, and I do think that that is worth reflecting on. Um, It could really sound like what I'm saying up here and what Jesus is saying is that our salvation, our uh, 
yeah, our salvation, I guess, depends on us, right? Because that's all describing actions. And the, the people that mistreated people in this story, um, therefore mistreated God, and the king says, away from me. But the testimony of all of Scripture um, is that salvation in our you know, right standing with God is by faith and not by our works. I want to just make that clear. I don't want you to leave here worried if you're going to go to hell if you place your faith in Jesus. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, Jesus is saying that we should be just as concerned. I mean, that's crazy. We should be just as concerned about bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth for the least of these, the marginalized people, as we are about believing the correct things about hell. But we're reconciled to God by placing our trust in Jesus, period. There is such a thing certainly as faith uh, expressing itself in what we do. But I do just want to make sure you, you don't think I'm telling you you have to earn your salvation because I still, still think that Jesus is the center. Because God has been on a rescue mission from the beginning. Since God called a man named Abram way back, one through one person he began this story that would begin through him and onto his spiritual offspring all over the world. I think it's great. We're going to have a group of Swahili-speaking brothers and sisters in our basement that from where we sit are on the other ends of the earth. And from where we sit to them, we are on the other ends of the earth. We are, we're seeing, like, the answer to God's mission, like, in this building on a Sunday. That's pretty cool. God's rescue mission. Because that's what I think this story is all about, is a rescue mission. And I, and I do think there's a reality um, that the Bible describes as hell that is something that nobody loves to talk about. And it could look different than what we think. That's how I approach this with humility. Um, the Pharisees knew the Bible better than anybody, and they were shocked by lots of things. The same could be true about us, particularly in the way that we view heaven or hell. Some people believe that um, rather than there being a literal hell, that God, uh, that people choose to distance and separate themselves from God, because that's really what it's, all, what it's all about, is voluntarily separating yourself from God, and that that would lead to non-existence because our life depends on God. Some people would think that, maybe. I already told you at the beginning you're going to have lots of other questions <laughs> and lots of other tensions that you might be feeling around all this. But God is on a rescue mission, and that's where I want to land this thing, is that our hope against the hells on earth and whatever sort of hell is beyond, our hope is in his name. And his name is Jesus I learned something new that I want to share with you when I was in Israel. Um, when Jesus was with his disciples at the Last Supper, 
um, the night that he was betrayed, uh, they were celebrating the Passover week. So um, there's lots of just Jewish roots. Jesus, we forget sometimes that Jesus was functioning within the, the Jewish framework. And we can, we can glean a lot from that, too. There's some things that we don't need to worry about, um, but some things that we can learn and admire through that. Um, and in the celebration of Passover, they were remembering that God had delivered uh, his people out of slavery in Egypt. You've heard that before, probably, right? Moses uh, leading the people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery into a new identity as God's people. That's what Passover is. It celebrates that. And in the Jewish tradition, they would celebrate something uh, called the Passover Seder meal. You can throw that picture up. Um, where they would eat uh, and drink. There were four cups that actually at this um, Seder meal. And Jesus likely was probably celebrating this version of what we call the Last Supper, but with his disciples on that night before he was betrayed. Or that he was betrayed. At that table, uh, of course, there was all sorts of food, and uh, they would take four different cups of wine that would commemorate, like I said, the God calling his people out of slavery. And there is a debate about a fifth cup that I think from the Jewish perspective might be challenging from the Christian perspective, as we'll see in a minute, is beautiful. So those four cups, those four, first four cups, the first one represented God calling uh, people, his people out of Israel to be his own. The second cup represented that God was their deliverer out of the land of slavery. The third cup was about their redemption. And they would drink these cups. They would celebrate these cups all around. And then the fourth cup was the cup that celebrated their hope. And then there was the fifth cup. That again, uh, some of the rabbis would have debated. Maybe even some Christians might debate this sort of idea today. But it was the cup of God's wrath, a cup of justice, if you will. It represented the cost for sin and injustice that either the people had to drink or God himself had to drink. It is believed that someone had to drink this cup in this symbolic celebration, either the people or God. Now it's clear isn't it from the cycles of brokenness in us that there's no way humankind is capable of drinking this cup and making things whole on our own? We can't survive that. So this cup of God's justice, this cup of God's wrath, this cup of that gap between human beings and God, only God himself could satisfy and drink that cup. And so it was either us or God, and we couldn't, so it was up to God. So watch closely. The cup is empty. Jesus drank the cup. Jesus paid it all. Jesus closed the gap. Jesus overcame. Jesus is God's answer to our cry. 
Jesus is our deliverer, our redeemer, our hope, and our rescue. Or the hells of this earth and the hells beyond. So when we celebrate communion, it's a way for us to remember that Jesus did what only Jesus could. So we celebrate that good news that Jesus, uh, it says, for what I've received from the Lord, I pass on to you the Lord on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. That was his body. And he gave thanks. And so let me actually do that for a second. Lord, thank you. Thank you amongst all the confusion of this life that you um, you came to dwell with us, Emmanuel. You became a human being. You showed us how to live. And you surprised the world with your sacrifice. You surprised the world by drinking the cup yourself. So he gave thanks and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. took the Wyoming Harbor and the two guys brewing mug. (laughs) And he said, this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We celebrate that at this table that you see over there and over there, and we got some up in the balcony. That with this symbol, Jesus has left us, that through him we have hope beyond death. We have hope beyond the hells on earth and the hells outside of the physical life. And in Jesus, we have eternal life, and that starts now. I'm going to pray, and after I'm done praying, I want to invite you to come forward and remember that hope that even against whatever fear you might have of judgment, that Jesus paid it all and he drank the cup. And I do want to also invite you to, if you need someone to pray with you, um, myself and a couple others will be up here. You can, when you come up to do communion, you can do it and then stick around for that song and we'll pray for you afterwards. But let's pray, and then there's two different forms, sorry, of, of communion you can do here. There's those little um, packet things. Those are gluten-free. The bread thing is on top. Um, you, can, you can come up with, with the group you're with if you'd like to do it that way. Uh, of course, you can dip the bread in the juice and celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection that way as well. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for, again, I mean, I've prayed it several times already, but you're Redeeming love, your entering into the chaos with us, your picture of redemption, your drinking the cup, your paying the price, your name. I pray that your Holy Spirit will move um, and fill in all of the gaps that my brothers and sisters might need in order to see clearly how much you love them. And to the extent 
of which you were willing to pay to redeem them and bring them home. We celebrate this symbol that you gave us, and we do so in harmony with Christians all over the world for thousands of years now that have come to believe that you are the answer. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So we celebrate that right now. I pray that you will uh, set people free from all things that reek of hell, that you will deliver them from addictions they might feel right now, that hope will rise up inside of them, that with you, you actually can change things and that they don't have to be defined by their past and that you are a God that can make and will make and does make all things new. So we celebrate you this morning, Jesus. Amen.